Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Bye, bye, bye. Welcome to the Brown Baby Podcast, a podcast about parenting and kids and family that asks the question, how on earth do we raise our kids to be joyful and boundless in a bleak world that we're so sad and angry about? I'm your host, Nick S. Shukla. I'm a writer a dad of two, and a 40-year-old man who recently returned to the basketball court because he watched The Last Dance in 2020 and thought, I used to be a super sharpshooter when I was younger. My knees, oh my knees, oh my knees. Each week I interview fellow parents of brown babies, writers, musicians, chefs, comedians, actors and more, to talk about their parenting journey and the highs and lows they've experienced along the way. This is a podcast inspired by my memoir, Brown Baby, a memoir of race, family and home. The memoir is about uh, conversations I've had with my kids about all of these things that keep me up at night, like racism and sexism and climate change and grief and and also my own grief for my mum. It's out now. It's had a really lovely reception, but I'd love to shift more copies of it. So please buy it, please, please, please. So yeah, uh, Brown Baby is hopefully a podcast that will spark honest and self-effacing conversations about how we tell our kids about the world. It features parenting fails, plus the best and worst advice me and my guests have ever received. And it's, I'm hoping, a comforting, uplifting podcast for anyone who's ever found themselves searching for answers in a sleep-deprived Google hole. This week, my guest is writer and thinker Dr. Pragya Agarwal. She is the author of the amazing book about unconscious bias, Sway, and the super helpful and practical book, Wish We Knew What to Say, which is a book that gives parents the tools to have conversations with their kids about race. It's a must-have, not just for the parents of brown babies, but for all parents. We should all be having these conversations. Pragya also has a new book coming out in the summer called Motherhood, which is uh, part memoir, and it uh, it's where she uses her own experiences and choices around motherhood to examine the broader societal and scientific factors that drive how we think and talk about the issue, including education, economic status, feminism, race and more. Uh, Pragya is, is an incredible writer and thinker and I'm really glad we sat down uh, to talk because she had so many interesting things to say. We talk about what it's like raising twins, mixed race kids, unconscious bias and the importance of talking to kids about race and racism and how to do that. 
I've put a link to where you can buy her books from bookshop.org where I have an affiliate link in the show notes. Please consider buying them to support Pragya and Brown Baby to support me. I've noticed as the podcast has gone on that my intros have got shorter. I used to like sharing stories about my kids that have happened that week, but as the episodes have gone on, I've just noticed myself going into my head a bit. I think this third lockdown has been long. Social media is a lot of shouting and finger pointing and I realise I'm still sitting where I was a year ago. Maybe I'm bored, maybe I'm inert, maybe I'm depressed, I don't know. But this week I just thought I would tell you that. I'm feeling shit today my friends. So thank you for listening. I hope you're not feeling shit yourself and if you are, I hope you have people to talk to. Uh, Times out really are hard right now and I'm thinking of you. Okay, on with the show. Please welcome to the podcast, to the Brown Baby Podcast, Dr. Pragya Agrawal. Hello, how are you doing? So nice to see you. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's it's a pleasure to be here. We are both people who write a lot about race and um, racism. And, you know, specifically, you wrote an incredible book about unconscious bias called Sway. And then last year, in 2020... Um, you put out a book called Wish We Knew What To Say, which is an incredible book. It's such an important book that I urge all parents to read. And I wonder if you could just tell the Brown Baby podcast audience what the book is and I guess what the main takeaways that you want people to get from the book are. And then we'll kind of delve deeper into the stuff in the book. Oh, thank you so much. So yes, Wish We Knew What To Say kind of... um... It started from my whole desire about talking more honestly about race and racism with children from a very young age. Um, And we know that children um, take on these kind of notions of identity, self-identity, but how other people um, have a place in the world from a very young age. And they're not born biased, but they start assigning stereotypes from what they learn around them. And I was noticing that there was a lot of desire to talk about children, but perhaps um, it was only that parents of certain communities, maybe white parents, were thinking that it's only their responsibility. And I wrote this book because I think that parents of all backgrounds and ethnicity need to talk about these these um, topics with their children because it's important that they have a very secure racial identity, no matter what their background and ethnicity and also it's kind of broken up into age groups as just as a template as a tentative template to show that it's not a conversation we can leave till they're 10 or 12 years old because by that time some of these attitudes can become quite deeply entrenched so it has tips and strategies and some questions and conversations that we sometimes sidestep but they're really important to sit with this discomfort as parents and educators and carers Um, and so that's what the book hopefully will do so yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting book because um, so yeah, it is a great resource for parents who want to talk to their children about race and about racism, and you know to to arm them to be able to have those difficult conversations in a way that is open and honest. And um, one of the things I think about so much at the moment is that often people don't have the conversations that they should be having because they're so scared of being made to feel or getting something wrong and being made to feel uncomfortable that they got something wrong and one of the biggest learnings that I've had personally as a person personally as a person can you tell I'm a writer the one of the biggest learnings that I've certainly had over the last decade you know whether it's with these conversations or you know wanting to be a, uh, an ally to trans people um, or one, wanting to 
talk more openly about class issues having you know being middle class um is that i increasingly am more happy to say the wrong to say the wrong thing and be corrected and be uncomfortable and sit in that discomfort sit in that feeling of uncomfortableness and try and understand it uh, but also move on from it because actually um my my feeling uncomfortable should never trump anyone else's dignity and also the best way to be an ally is to accept that you're going to make at the very early stages accept that you're going to make mistakes and move on from them and one of the things that I thought reading your book was that you make it seem possible to have this conversation and it's not just a book for parents um of non-white children in the UK you know if anything those parents are already having those conversations with their children in you know very interesting ways that are probably based around you know how those parents have um been racialized uh but you know it's it's a great resource for white parents who want to know how to have these conversations with their white children and but also for um parents who shy away from those difficult conversations because they sort of think that these things should just happen in the school sorry there was a lot there there wasn't a question there was a lot there i just threw a lot of stuff at you react to all of it please (laughs) no i i completely agree that yes i think part of my learning curve has also been as a parent to be able to say actually i don't know and i don't have all the answers because I think when I first became a parent, I thought I should be able to tell my child everything. I should be able to tell them that I have all the answers and they should never feel that I have any flaws or weaknesses or I make any mistakes. But I think as I've grown into my own skin, I've realized that it's okay to say, oh, actually, I don't know the answers. Let's explore together or let's find out the answers together. It's important to ask the questions rather than that feel that, Oh, um, I should be able to provide you with all the answers. So I think that's something I wanted to do with the book as well to say, actually, we don't all have all the answers all the time. No, but it's important for parents as much as children to unlearn or to learn together, to unlearn some of the biases that we have, we might carry as well as some of these kind of stereotypes that we have and some of the mistakes that we make, we can also learn together. And I think that and and give a ch- child a space to actually ask these questions and to create a space at home where they are comfortable asking any questions or comfortable making mistakes as well, I think. Unless we show that we can make mistakes, they wouldn't be able to make mistakes either. Um, yeah, I think it's it those, those kind of questions sometimes that can be conversation starters because, yes, people are so worried because these are contentious topics and people are worried that they will make mistakes and they will say the wrong thing and often that can... Uh, stop people from actually taking even the first step Um, and sometimes we don't know what kind of topics do we talk about with children and we sometimes parents wait to bring up these topics until there is a problem like we saw with Black Lives Matter until there was there's a problem that happens but that's a conversation that should happen all the time it should be part of our children's education every day and we should be talking about it and we should normalize these conversations so so I think that's uh, that's something that I'm trying to do as a parent I think do you think I don't know what I think about this so please feel free to pick holes in this but do you think that having these conversations reactively tends to mean that they might be happening too late 
Yes, it can happen that it might happen too late because I think suddenly when Black Lives Matter happened or George Floyd murder happened, suddenly parents realized, oh, actually our children are asking so many questions. But by the time some of the children like 10, 12, 13 years old, and they've already got these notions of racial hierarchies already imbibed from for this year around them. And so by that time, it's sometimes late to challenge those stereotypes. It can be done and there's no never a late uh, law, kind of too late to start these conversations. But I think it's important we start it as early as possible because then we also want to empower our children to be allies as well, I think, not just uh, not just be anti-racist or be secure in their identities, but actually be empowered to create change. And I always say our best hope is the next generation because we've already messed up the world as much as we could. So. You've got twins. And so with your kids, when did you start talking to them about race? It's really interesting because I write about that in my book as well. And I have something I've reflected on. So I have an older daughter. I came to the UK as a very young single parent. And when I came here first, I've talked a little bit about how I didn't really talk about race or racism with her because that's not something that I thought about much when I was growing up in India. I thought about, of course, patriarchy and gender bias. So that was something really foremost, very important for me as a bringing up a girl to for her to be empowered. Um, and also I wanted to fit in, and I think that's something that a lot of first-generation immigrants feel that they need to just fit in and not draw attention to difference. But when, with my twins, um, um, they are mixed heritage. Um, uh, so my husband's white. And so I think I became more conscious over the years about how not talking about race or racism has, has can create a problem because my elder older daughter um, navigated a lot of very predominantly white spaces and that that then we started having these conversations. So with my young children from a very young age, I started introducing very diverse books to them and I wanted to make sure that they seeing themselves in, in these books. I wanted to tell them that people have different skin colors. It's not just one skin color because we live in a very predominantly white place. And again, where they didn't, in the nursery, they're the only children with dark hair or dark eyes or in school, and which is very unusual in today's day and age. Um, and I found that they were actually reacting with a little bit of fear for with people who they weren't familiar with. So the only brown people they saw was me or their older sister. So when we went to India for the first time, they were a bit fearful of people because they hadn't really seen so many Indian or brown people. And I realized that fear is a natural um, kind of reaction to, to something unfamiliar. Um, so my husband and I, we've made a very kind of conscious decision to talk about it honestly, but it's still quite tricky for three, four years olds to talk about kind of racism. Um, but these conversations are happening more and more now because recently we went out and uh, uh, it was just the three of us and had an incident where a, a man shouted and screamed at me for some reason and and we had to call the police and tell the police. And I, when I got in the car, I was crying a little bit. And so I had to talk to them about how some people might perceive different people differently or see them in an or treat them in an unkind way because of the way they think about them. But I have to be very careful because I don't want them to kind of demonize white people either because their father is white. Um, but yes, we're having more conversations around skin color, um, around different kinds of how everybody's special and unique, um, how people from different heritage and background of countries can look different. We've talked about melanin, how different skin 
have different amounts of melanin, which gives them different skin color. And so we're talking more and more about these things, about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and just bringing those conversations in. You've written in the past, I've seen you talking in the past about when you came over to the UK and um, ending up outside of London um, in, in academia and how, how difficult it was to be in those spaces. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit, but also within the context of how you then helped your, your daughter to kind of adjust to this huge change that was happening around her. I think when I first came here, as I said before, um, I, I, I wanted to believe that my gender or my race or my background is not a barrier to anything. And that is something that I want to convey to my daughter that it's not a nothing is a barrier. And I think that is my way of empowering her. But that is the kind of myth of meritocracy that we carry sometimes with us thinking that if we all worked harder, we could achieve the same things, you know. So I, I wanted to believe that I wasn't seen differently or I wasn't treated differently because of it. And so it was um, better for me to ignore any kind of microaggressions or not relate them to race, race in any way. Um, I didn't want to feel like I was... Um, I, my appointment to any academic positions or anything was due to any kind of positive discrimination, which sometimes I think uh, people of color can, or, or, or minority ethnic people can be, some, sometimes they, they, these kind, they, can, they can feel like that, that they have been appointed to something just because there was a diversity push or something rather than because of their achievements. And I did want to feel like that. So I, that's why I didn't talk about race or racism with her. As I said, I spoke more mainly about sexism and how women can do anything they want. But slowly over the years, I think I realized more and more that this is a conversation that we need to have. So I've written in the book about how when she was around nine or 10, we used to live in one of the Midlands town, which was very white. And we went out just for shopping for our shoes in summer holidays. And somebody called the police because they thought that we were shoplifting or we looked like people who were shoplifters. And so when we walked back to the car park, suddenly a police officer came. And that was a really kind of shocking moment for me because I hadn't till that moment thought that I don't belong here. I really wanted to just have this strong belief that I belong here completely and I'm not different to anybody else. And that um, that was really kind of an eye opening. And I could see my child getting really scared. She had grown up here to feel like she had been seen differently because of her skin color. So I think that's when we started talking about these things a little bit more and about the microaggressions. And but I don't think I had adequate amount of conversation, as much conversation as I should have with her which I look back with regret a little bit one of the things that comes up in the book um, is this <clears throat> I get let me rephrase it and sort of bring it round to the book because I think what I think is interesting about the um, the conversation around racism in the UK is you kind of have um, people people who fixate on microaggressions and then you have people who fixate on the people who fixate on microaggressions uh, and sort of scream what about systemic racism in their in their face and and I often think that actually we have to make space to talk about 
both of these things because the casualness and the insidiousness are both important factors in how overwhelming it is to dismantle systems like the fact that it's so normalized that someone can call you know call the police on you because you look like a what they perceive to be a shoplifter is i'm not saying it's the same as you know over policing and mass incarceration but you know they are they are part of the same society that has bred things at one end and at the other and actually I, I want us to be able to talk about all of these things and I worry that you know too much sort of undermining of microaggressions can lead to the conversation around racism seeming untenable or not untenable like hard harder to dismantle but but then also if we're not talking about systemic issues and we're only talking about the day-to-day horror then we're nothing is ever gonna (laughs) gonna change so and and i feel like it's something you talk about a little bit in wish we knew what to say um i I wondered if you could just expand on that idea a little bit no i completely agree with you i think there's uh, again uh, within the people who are talking about race and racism and these conversations that are happening i feel like there is this divisiveness and we don't really need any further divisiveness and i think I think when we we have to focus on system and structure and we have to acknowledge the role that history has played in creating our contemporary society and how people have been racialized and how these hierarchies have been created. But we also have to talk about, as you say, these implicit, insidious kind of forms of uh, racism that occur in everyday life, which can be normalized. Because until we talk about individual and interpersonal racism, people don't take individual accountability and responsibility. And I do feel like we need to have this conversation because both are important, as you say, because the systemic and the structural inequalities or racism or racialization feeds into our individual biases and the way that we uh, or people form these stereotypes and hierarchies that affect their interpersonal relationships or the way they treat other people or these microaggressions, which become normalized. But then we also they also reinforce the systemic and structural inequalities because of these individual actions so it it is a vicious cycle it is a cycle that keeps repeating and we have to tackle both because if we yes as you say if we talk just about systemic and structural things that individual accountability and responsibility is missing we can just put blame on it's a huge structural thing it has to be tackled somewhere else it's not our problem um, so yes, I think it it we have to see it as a cycle that keeps repeating. When did you begin your work into in in this area? You know, Sway, which is a you know magnificently complex book about the complexities of un- unconscious bias. I kind of read it and thought, I <laughs> I feel even more at sea, knowing the you know knowing the full extent of of how conscious bias unconscious bias rather exists in our world um so so where where did this work begin for you i think slowly and gradually over the years so um so when i was working in academia as i said i was slowly realizing how how inequalities can mean that certain students don't have the same opportunities so there were students from minority ethnic communities who would who would find me because I was often the only person uh, of color or academic of color in that position, um, especially women perhaps, um, who, who would find me and come and talk to me about the pressures they were facing. And I was trying to encourage more diversity initiatives 
Um, I always had a problem with the word diversity, but we were trying to bring in more students from different backgrounds. And I was trying to mentor different students to figure out why they wouldn't go for certain internships, why, what kind of barriers they were facing, why they wouldn't go for postgrad. I was leading a master's course at that time as well. So this work was slowly happening over the years. Um, but I think, as I said, I wasn't really completely, when you're seeped into a particular domain in academia, I wasn't completely comfortable questioning the practices that I already existed in it and, and the way it affected how people saw me and, and reacted to me. Um, then I left full-time academia and I worked with a number of US universities and I found that the, the, the problems were, um, although they were more multicultural academic departments over there, they were different kinds of complex issues there uh, in US departments or in Australia, for instance, and then we went to Chile and I taught there and I just, I was just soaking in all these different things and talking to people about the barriers that were there and just looking at how these hierarchies were there and how these assumptions were made of people. And I was, I think, beginning, beginning to become more, more and more aware of how people saw people and reacted to them without taking the time to know them. And I think my work in Sway kind of emerged from that. And I was talking to, working as a consultant with a few kind of global and corporate organizations, but slowly because my children were still very young and the first few year, couple of years of their birth was very, 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 very difficult for us. So um, I was working with them, but it also emerged from my work in kind of the whole notion of bias because I was working in technology and bias and how our, our models of the world are only a snapshot of the world, but we assume that they are the complete story and they are the complete narrative, but, and, but we don't consider that they can be multiple stories and multiple narratives that we need to consider. And I think that is quite pertinent in how we react to, to in terms of racism, but also other forms of bias, because we assume that our worldview is the absolute view of the world and the absolute perspective on the world sometimes. Um, I read that I read a really amazing book by uh, an academic called Meredith Broussard, who talks a lot about AI and the coders, the AI coders gaze. And there's like a fascinating chapter where she's test driving self-driving cars and realizes that they have not been built with um, with different body types in, in mind. And and um, and she also talks about how. Uh, you, you know like obviously we, we know all these examples of like um, soap disp automatic so soap dispensers that don't recognize uh, dark skin and um, you know Google uh, Google tagging uh, photo photographs of um, uh, yeah and, and and so on and so forth um, and I yeah I find I find that fascinating you know is is that the kind of work that you that you were you were doing that kind of led you into the the sort of the field of unconscious bias uh, um, when it when it came to technologies yeah nothing as dystopian as that but i think that's a really really fascinating idea because yes what if technology or our devices start recognizing that and adapting to it but what if it also starts assigning kind of stereotypes to us because of these things, because of the way it's been designed? It's really, really cool idea, actually. Um, but yeah, the work I was doing was about designing information systems and about how um, how we if we capture different mental models and how the, this notion of uncertainty and bias can be can, is built into technology because 
we we assume that technology is very objective, but actually machine learning and algorithm is based in data that's been trained, the data that's been captured by people. And so it's a snapshot of reality. Again, it's not an absolute truth. Um, they chose to record some aspects of reality and not the others. And also, they also the the, the data is trained on uh, is also got biases built on it. So there's a lot of biases that can build get built into it depending on who's designing it. And so if the team is composed only of white men, then obviously they have a particular norm that they ascribe to. So for instance, one of the examples which I found really fascinating was when YouTube designed the video uploading app, they they hadn't even considered the left-handed users. And so they found that people were uploading the videos incorrectly and they realized they were only designed for right-handed users. So that's a societal norm again. And I went to get a photo for uh, in one of those photo booths in the supermarket for my driving license. And I thought it'll take five minutes. I was in a rush. And it took me 25 minutes because it kept coming up with the error message that your mouth is open. And my mouth was completely closed. And I even took a screenshot of it to show that I tightly shut my mouth. And it kept saying, saying your mouth is open and it couldn't take my photograph. So obviously these these yeah they they have they they're not built in these sensitivities are not there the parameters are quite rigid according to what the norm is and they, they're not flexible so yeah these this was some of the work that i was doing then about how we how how maps even are not an absolute truth they are they're a view of perspective of reality depending on who wants to who wanted to show what so there is a kind of dominant ideology that was presented in maps as well Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. One of the things that I think about when it comes to raising mixed race children um, is something that you, you said earlier on about not wanting to demonize white people 
uh, which you know obviously like the whole point of anti-racism is that everyone you know there is equity and equality and everyone treats each other as human beings and um, we dismantle systems enough that we can kind of get to this sort of the, the, this this space um, but one of the things that I think about when it comes to raising mixed race children is that they won't my, my, certainly my kids won't ever be racialized as white they'll always be racialized as you know South Asian or as mixed race and I think that's really interesting because um, already now I can see their identities forming around what that means and around what that means for um, the kids around them. And I, I wonder, I, I know that the book, your book, that Wish We Knew What To Say, is specifically about having conversations about race and racism. But what, what advice would you give to parents who are raising mixed race children so that they are, you know, they're, they're being raised to kind of really lean into the sort of the multi multifaceted identity that they have uh, without ever um, feeling like they have to choose to belong to one or the other I guess that's all you know that's the endless question of having mixed race children yeah. how, you know how do you ensure that they don't feel pressure to choose yeah and I think it, that is a very tricky uh, tricky thing to do and I, I do talk a little bit about that and wish we knew what to say because I was reflecting on my own experience but also as you say about while everybody is a lot of people would be mixed heritage or mixed race some of them might have more privilege because of being white passing than others and the way that they are treated or automatically slotted into a category because of the way they look so my children have a fairer skin than me but they do have dark hair and dark eyes so so um they they are big Initially, they started saying that they wanted blonde hair because everybody on their friend circle had blonde hair and they'd seen frozen. And so we had to have a conversation about how dark hair is beautiful and it comes from me and from her, their grandmother and all that sort of stuff. But then recently, one of my twins said, oh, I love my skin, actually. Everybody should have dark skin. And I was like, this is really great. This is something getting somewhere. And then she said, uh, I think white skin is really bad. I was like, no, that's not the point that you're trying to make here. <laughs> so so um, I think, yes, I think as long as we let children expose our children to all sides of their heritage in, in, in a kind of a situation where they see their parents being comfortable with their identity, because if, for instance, one of their parents is not very comfortable with their own background and heritage and identity or trying to hide parts of it or trying to pretend that they don't belong to that heritage or being ashamed of it, I think that would rub off on the children. So if the children grow up in an environment where they see these things, they hear stories from different cultures and heritage, they, they know that they come from both these sides they they celebrate different festivals which i'm trying very actively to do which can be difficult here sometimes um and they hear these stories and they they're rooted in these then i think as they grow older they can choose what they want to be and how they want to be they can choose parts of it and i think it should be an option for all children to choose which parts of their identity they want to belong and not be able, have to conform to a label whether they're black or white or brown maybe in the end um, whether they are more black than more white or more brown than more white I think they can create their own identity that's kind of an idealized view uh, vision 
that I have, perhaps. But it's but it's also an idealized view that I think um, relies on not pressurizing children because I think I guess for me growing up as you know as a child of immigrants to this country there was so much more pressure on us to um, have a cultural awareness or a awareness of heritage that spoke to for want of a better term the the, the motherland you know to to where where my both my parents were from in India or you know my you know my dad grew up in Kenya my mum grew up in Yemen but the roots were in India um and so for them you know ensuring that we have this sort of this heritage and this culture was really really important because it kind of rooted them to where they'd come from whereas I think increasingly that as long as my kids are aware of um aware of their background aware of where their family's from aware of you know as you say like the 360 degree cult cultural sort of knowledge or or you know access then um it won't feel like such a rejection when they form their own identities i think that's what it is i think i've just carried the guilt of almost seeming like i rejected certain parts of my heritage to my parents you know like from simple things like you know, you know, you talk Gujarati in the family home up until the point where it becomes easier for you to reply in English, and then eventually they start asking in English, and then you are, you then your Gujarati is reserved for talking to grandparents. But as they get older, you have you have fewer grandparents, and no, it it was re- it is really you sum it up so well about about this guilt that we carry sometimes, but also. Sometimes, yeah, I mean, I speaking from personal experience, I think, as I said, when I came here, I was rejecting parts of my Indian identity because I was escaping a lot of Indian baggage and trappings and things. And I was like, I don't want to associate with that. And and then I saw my child growing up who, who yeah, started speaking English. She didn't want to speak any Hindi. She didn't want to wear any Indian clothes. She, she just didn't want to do any kind of Indian music or dance that she used to do. She was learning classical music here. And then she could speak to her, communicate very well with her grandmother or grandfather back in India. So those kind of relationships start breaking down a little bit, which were very strong. Um, and I think now, I, yes, I don't want to impose anything on my children, but I'm also aware that growing up here, they don't have very strong roots or back kind of ties with their Indian heritage because we speak only in English at home because of my husband doesn't know any Hindi and we only celebrate things that are here at school also there's a little bit of Indian festivals so I'm actively bringing in stories from India there's traditional stories actively singing to them in Hindi actively making sure that they say hear Hindi or kind of read Indian stories or look at Indian characters or at least talk to them about it even when my my four-year-old really loved Kaju Burfi recently and I just gave me so much pleasure just to think that we have this tie. Um, and I think, yeah, those little things can can make, just, just inspire pride in their heritage rather than feeling ashamed of that part of their heritage. And then they, they are free to choose whatever they want to be. Yeah. God, that's that's such a sensible way of doing it. I think, but I, but you know, as as we're both kind of acknowledging, you know, so much. It's so hard sometimes, as a parent, to kind of strip away your own emotion from these things and kind of see what's best for your children, free of you know, as you describe your own your own baggage. No, absolutely. Yeah, there are times when I feel like 
oh gosh, they would never, I mean, I start panicking sometimes. There's this anxiety that's created that they will never know part of me or they will never know how I grew up. And then I also start feeling guilty about the privilege that they have, which I didn't have perhaps. And they need to acknowledge that they have this privilege. And I think all those kind of things, yes, we will always carry these packages, parents. I think we have to acknowledge that as well, that we can't just strip away of it all. But as long as we... I don't know, just uh, just use it sensibly or deploy it sensibly and not put so much pressure on our children to to conform to their this uh, this this part of their identity because of guilt. I think it shouldn't should be a choice rather than guilt or an obligation, I think. So how how do we how do we take ourselves out of the equation? Because, uh, you know, obviously there's so much lived experience that we have when it comes to how we then view the world. I'm so, I I think I'm often so nervous about projecting the way I view the world onto my children in a way that might overshadow how they might uh, form their own vision of the world. I, I think that's one of my biggest fears because I know what keeps me up at night and I would never want it to keep them up at night. But at the same time, I want them to have a realistic viewpoint of what mm. the world is like. It's so di- I find it so difficult. It's a really tough line to walk, isn't it? Yes, I think I was I did that quite intensely with my older child <laughs> because I was so anxious about being a good parent but also making sure that I I protected her but also made her aware of everything and so I was just constantly battling these things. I think I've become a little bit more laid back <laughs> with my twins. Maybe I'm just so exhausted and tired now. that. <laughs> but no, I think it's a very tricky line to, and I think as to walk and um, we can't completely take us, ourselves out of the equation because we are part of the equation. We, we cannot take it out. But um, I think what we can do is to maybe what I try to do now is to maybe ask them how they feel of a certain situation before telling them how they should feel. And I, even when they're four year old, I always say, so what did you think about it? And how did you see it? And how did you think about it? Did you feel like this? And I'm constantly anxious about how they are perceived at school or whether somebody is being mean to them or bullying them because of their skin color. And I don't want to bring those anxieties to them and make them feel anxious about it. But I am also wary about but all these things so um yeah i don't know this there's no clear answer i'm sorry for my rambling slightly rambling response to it but that rambling that is just my internal monologue as i stare at the ceiling at 2 a.m because i can't sleep you know constantly beating myself up for not having the answers and then beating myself up for being hard on myself and, and all the rest of it um so the, the the final bit of the podcast, I, I often ask the same three questions. Um, the first is, how do you raise your kids to be joyful and boundless and ambitious and see the beauty in the world when everything is as bleak and as fucked up as it is? Yeah, it is something that I also agonize over. And I think children also soak in anxieties from their parents so I think sometimes I have to pretend to be happy 
with them and sometimes I have to pretend to be optimistic that everything is going to work out okay and everything is possible and you can do anything you want and all these empowering cheesy messages that I give them a lot <laughs> which but I, I do think that we have to carry a sense of optimism and hope because otherwise there's nothing you know we have to be hopeful we have to be hopeful that these people are going to grow up in amazing individuals and I already see it in the new generation they're more open-minded they're more tolerant they're they're more active um, activists they're more um, just just aware and inclusive and I, I really have huge hopes for for how people parents are now raising their children and how children are going to grow up and be very empowered so I think just just giving just making them aware connected to the world around them talking to them about their own privilege and the lack of privilege that other people have, might have and what we can do to help them i think that's something that's been my motto like I, since my older child we, we used to um we used to um volunteer at a homeless shelter every christmas and boxing day so, uh, from the age she could and we used to go and cook um, food for them and she used to serve and it was a really sobering thing for her as a 14 year old 13 year old to to see that these people don't have food and the joy it gave her but it was also a nice kind of bonding experience for us without making a big deal of it um, so I think that's something for me is really important about how my children acknowledge that they can help others and create change and what has been the best advice you've received as a parent and, what, um, and also, what has been the most useful advice, useless advice you've received <laughs> as a parent? Uh, I don't know. There's been a lot of useless <laughs> advice. I usually <laughs> kind of just forget about it. But it's often, I think, it, it was something to do with being twins, that they sync their cycles and the fact that they will it'll be really easy once they start doing the same thing, which my children never do. They're very strong personalities and they just like raising two completely different children um so so i'm just like treating them as individuals i think is something that i i rebelled against that idea of treating them as a homogeneous unit <laughs> um <laughs> and the useful thing is i think it will all work out in the end i think i i'm so anxious as a parent about doing the right thing and whether i'm doing the right thing and whether i can do more and whether i'm doing enough and I think yeah it will all work out in the end <laughs> Dr. Pagya Agarwal thank you very much thank you so much for having me it's been lovely thank you so much for listening thank you to Pragya for her kindness and wisdom and to Bluebird my publisher for supporting the podcast and to Clarissa and John from Acast as well for being legends thank you to all of the listeners ways that you can support the show include buying my book and the work of each guest each week using or uh, using the ACAST supporter feature, shouting about us on social media or liking and subscribing and leaving a review, preferably all of these things. It helps to keep the show free. Thank you. See you next week. Bye-bye. Brown baby, I am brown baby. Yes, I am, I am. Silly brown baby. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.